Hello, and welcome to the season premiere of Weimar Fashion Made in Germany, part of the German Fashion History Podcast, formerly known as the East German Fashion History Podcast. For this season, we will explore one of Berlin's most illustrious decades with a hard focus on the ready-to-wear garment industry, notable Berlin fashion houses, and the inevitable destruction of it all with the Aryanization of the fashion, textile, and publishing industries leading up to Nazi Germany. From Weimar-era literature, fashion publications, film, and trusted secondary sources, I'll be piecing together a mosaic of Berlin's rich and complex fashion history. Today's episode is actually not going to focus on fashion, but will attempt to construct the complex cultural and political landscape of the Weimar era to really better understand the varying conditions, currents, and influences that persisted. Now, fashion thrives on the ephemeral and lives symbiotically within its zeitgeist. So this is what you need to know to understand this fascinatingly complex sartorial culture. First things first, what was the Weimar Republic? Well, the Weimar Republic was the interim post-World War I government between 1918 and 1933. Weimar refers to the city of Weimar, where the Republic's constituent assembly took place. This federal constitutional government was formed after the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm II prior to Germany was in a 47-year monarchy. In October of 1918, the constitution of the German Empire was created to delegate powers to the elected parliament. On October 29th in Kiel, a rebellion broke out amongst soldiers, sailors, and workers who had formed a workers' and soldiers' council, modeled after the Soviets of the Russian Revolution. This uprising spread throughout Germany. Now, the country already had a growing socialist movement, which was split between the Independent Socialist Party, which wanted peace negotiations in a Soviet-style economy, versus the Social Democratic Party, also known as the Majority Social Democratic Party. Today, they're known as the SPD. They favored a parliamentary system and supported the war effort. By the 7th of November, the revolution had reached Munich, and King Ludwig II had fled. The MSPD had insisted that Wilhelm abdicate himself. When he refused, Prince Max from Baden said that he did eventually step down. On the 9th, the German Republic, which was later referred to as the Weimar Republic in the 30s, was proclaimed. In December, Elections were held for the National Assembly, and they were tasked with creating a new parliamentary constitution. On February 6th of 1919, the following year, the National Assembly met in the town of Weimar and formed the Weimar Coalition. They also elected SPD leader Friedrich Ebert as president of the Weimar Republic. On August 11th of 1919, the Weimar Constitution was signed with SPD leader Friedrich Ebert as the president. Now, you've probably heard the term Weimar thrown around a lot 
associated with a particular kind of art, film, literature, or particular mood. And when we think about Weimar, we must see it in terms of a thriving culture, always on the precipice of something politically, artistically, socially motivated. It was reactive in its very nature and mirrored its environment, which was unstable, fragile, yet resilient. So here are some of the major cultural movements that influenced the Weimar Republic. First, you had the Novembergruppe, or the November Group. They were established in December of 1918. Adapting their name from the German November Revolution, this motley crew of artists and architects professed themselves radical and revolutionary, sharing strong socialist values. This was led by Max Pechstein and César Klein. In 1921, they called for an end to the bourgeoisie development of artists. And this declaration was signed by Otto Dix, who you've probably heard of, Georg Krotz, Raoul Hausmann, John Hertfield, Hannah Hösch, Rudolf Schlichter, and Georg Scholz. Stylistically, they sought out a matter-of-factness in their work, intent on a more unflattering approach and honest representation of life. This was really a direct social criticism and a rejection of pre-war German expression sentimentality. They wanted a stronger unity between public art and life. And as the art critic Edward Sorrell marked, quote, they were confident that merely by rejecting the sentimentality of pre-war German expressionism and substituting a more realistic sober view of the life around them, they could only bring about a new society, but usher in a new man. This raw and unfiltered representation of life is known as the Neue Sachlichkeit, or New Objectivity, which Otto Dix, Georg Krotz, as well as Kete Kollwitz all championed. But ultimately, the November group, like many artistic groups, was kind of a wild mix of different styles. And this mix was known as Cubo Fucho Expressionism. Another major movement and institution was the Bauhaus from 1919 to 1933, and this was also a byproduct of the Weimar era. This school conceptualized on egalitarian-minded principles with the vision of blending Mass production with high-minded artistic design for the everyday was founded by Walter Gropius. The institution had three schools in Dessau, Weimar, and Berlin. And similar to the matter-of-fact attitude of the new objectivity that we saw in the November group, the Bauhaus believed in an honest design where form follows function. Objects were designed to look like they were made of geometric and elegant shapes. Kitsch, scrollwork, and the personal touch or ideas or feelings of the artist designer had no place here. And again, we're moving away from this former monarchy and aristocracy. We're moving away from German expressionism of the pre-war and interwar years focused on the individual and looking at the collective, something that's new, unadulterated, and unfiltered. Really a much more honest way of 
perceiving the world in furniture, architecture, art, textiles, and in fashion. Theater and film. So the Weimar era is probably most known for its film, from classics like Metropolis, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Pandora's Box. The history of film really owes itself to Weimar. And fashion was naturally a part of this. And actually, many of the trends and coveted styles that you would see from the Berlin department stores would be showcased on the big screen. And later in this podcast, we're really going to delve more into how film was a vehicle for promoting the fashion trends of the day for the everyday person. In terms of graphic design, this was also, Weimar era is also really known for creating a specific aesthetic. So with the fall of the monarchy, which was heavily censored, everything from street signage to advertising, mass political communication like posters, etc., and ultimately all literature was censored, there was now a new generation of revolutionaries that came into symbolic power. Commercial entrepreneurs, businesses, and political clubs and coalitions really felt emboldened to proclaim their newfound sense of freedom of expression by really covering all the city surfaces and walls with their own means. And this newly constituted national parliament in Frankfurt lifted the barriers of censorship previously imposed by the German monarch. This created a so-called Straßenliteratur, or street literature. And this really became a political vehicle for, the rev- for revolutions and the revolution. This included posters, leaflets, chief booklets sold by street hawkers. And yes, while it was revolutionary for its political content, it also held the symbolic weight of really being able to read these pamphlets in public and not privately, as was once the case. Now, according to, and I highly recommend this publication, I have it on the blog post, according to Molly Loberg's The Struggle for the Streets of Berlin, post-war Berlin was a place of paper revolutions, as posters provided an essential medium, because the messaging was something more advanced sometimes for reading levels, for the average reading level, the poster makers attempted to write it in a specific Berlinerisch or Berliner, Berliner slang. When the Social Democrats took over in 1918, they appropriated many of the same visual schemes like the monarchy, printing its pro- proclamations on vibrant red, which was the color reserved for law and for official posters. And yet there was something propagandistic about the messaging from these posters, aspiring for discipline and sacrifice with slogans like, quote, don't strangle the young freedom through disorder and fratricide. And quote, he doesn't work, he who doesn't work is the grave digger of his children. So there really is this new era of frenetic energy felt throughout and these poster and paper plastered streets of Berlin really provided bounteous opportunities for commercial artists and graphic designers. 
here's here's the interesting part. In 1918-1919, when the SPD came into power, the Office of Publicity called on Berlin artists like Max Pechstein and Cesar Klein from the November Group to design these various posters. Albeit in some propagandistic slang or sayings like we just reviewed. <clears throat> now, naturally, the post-war is a nation of transition. And it would be a grave grave understatement to say that the economy was in a bit of a disarray. And this is another major part that we really need to get into because it was in complete and utter chaos. And we can't really even begin to understand Weimar era fashion without talking about the black market. Now, Berlin had developed a more extended black market than any other capital city at war and after war. Authorities tolerated it since the food distribution schemes in place failed to supply the populace. When the war ended, the black market surged into public space and trade was often bustling around train stations and working class and poor city districts. The Scheunenviertel, which was north of Alexanderplatz, was such an example was such an example because it it was really a large had a really large proletarian and immigrant district and we're going to see later on that this would eventually be the main site for a lot of anti-semitic attacks and hate crimes commerce and trade were turned inside out buying selling and trading went from the streets went from the shops to the streets and a major vehicle or proponent of this was street hawkers and street hawking. Now, street hawking really provided a lucrative opportunity to respond flexibly to unpredictable market conditions because you really only needed a small capital to get started. One could find a breathtaking array of goods from bread, leather jackets, jewelry, tobacco, soap, bicycles, even diamonds. August Mertens, a representative of the Social Democrats, sarcastically described the street hawking scene in an April 1919 speech as, quote, a complete department store style business emerged, a business so exemplary and magnificently organic and organized that one could have taken pure pleasure in it. If it didn't concern you that it was stolen or otherwise illicitly obtained goods, in short, if someone wanted to buy something in Berlin and didn't know where to get it, he could do nothing more clever than take a look out there. Now, in January of 1919, there, were, there was the Spartacist Revolt, result, which resulted in the looting of the Tietz department store at Alexanderplatz. Bullets sprinkled across their store windows, and an estimated 30,000 marks in damages was done. Looters also rampaged through a clothing store in the Mitte district, and it was noted that for weeks on weeks on weeks on weeks after, that a lot of the suits, fur coats, women's gloves, and umbrellas that were in that department store found themselves onto the black market and then probably hawked on the streets. Book and magazine sellers became human kiosks. 
pinning all the goods they sold to their clothes. You could wander around any major transit hub and see trays of fresh rolls wrapped around a hawker's neck or a drum player and a muzzled, quote, dancing bear luring children to outdoor carnivals. So this is really the general scene. Aside from the Spartacist revolt at at Teat's department store, these... um, these street hawkers, you would you'd find this on your everyday. And the really one of the best descriptions that um, and wonderful primary sources for this is in the novel Berlin Alexanderplatz by Alfred Döblin. I highly recommend you pick up a copy if you really wonder un, want to understand what the Weimar era was like and what that sense of chaos and frenetic energy was like. So um, he really captures this spirit with his character Franz Biberkopf. So Franz is the main character who had been released from prison and now he's really trying to survive and make a living in the Weimar era of Berlin hawking on the streets. So this is this is a quote from the book. Quote Franz who has sold his overcoat and is wearing thick underwear, which Lana got him somewhere, stands at Rosenthalerplatz in front of Fabisch and Co a high-class men's tailoring uh, made-to-measure store. Excellent work and low prices are, are characters of our products. And Franz is hawking necktie holders. He shouts his spiel, quote, Why does the smart man in the West End wear a bow tie when the proletarian doesn't? Ladies and gents, right up here, you too, Fraulein. With your husband, with your husband, minors allowed, it costs no more. Why does the proletarian wear bow ties? Because he can't wear, he can't tie them. Then he has to buy a tie holder. And after he's bought it, it's no good. And he can't tie the tie with it. That's swindling. It makes people bid, bitter. It pushes Germany still deeper into poverty than she, she is already. Why, for instance, do they not wear these big tie holders because nobody wants to put a dustpan around their neck? No man or woman wants that. Not even the baby if he could speak for himself. Please don't laugh, ladies and gents. Don't laugh. We don't know what's going on in that dear little child's brain. Oh, Lord. <laughs> the dear little head, the, the little head and the, and the curls. It's pretty, ain't it? But when you got to pay alimony, there's nothing to laugh at. That gets a man into trouble. Go buy yourself a tie like that at Tietz's or Vatheim's. Or if you don't want to buy it from the Jews, get it somewhere else. I am a Nordic man. I am. He raises his hat, blonde hair, red ears standing out, merry bull's eyes, and says, The big department stores. Don't have, don't have them. Don't advertise to me. They can exist without me. Buy a tie like the one I have here and then decide how you're, you're going to tie it tomorrow. End quote. So there's a lot to unpack there from this passage. Because it's, it's emblematic of some of the many biases and sentiments and class structures that existed during Weimar and are going to be part of the dialogue when we talk about Weimar fashion. First, there's this undertone of us versus them, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. 
There is also a sense of post-war poverty and trying to find a scapegoat. There's also the dichotomy of big corporations slash department stores versus the small business owner or street hawker in his case. And entwined in that messaging, there's obviously this anti-Semitism that's quite prevalent. Now, the fact that Franz had to assert that he was a Nordic man is quite evident of that. However, if you read on in the book, he's been befriending and he works closely with another Jewish man. So since the late 19th century in Germany, there had been a lot of backlash from shopkeepers and department stores. Shopkeepers lobbied regional governments to pay, to have department stores pay special taxes. These initiatives channeled anti-modern and ultimately anti-Semitic sentiments against these larger department stores. And we're going to get into that in our later episodes. So in conclusion, with everything up to this point in this episode, we haven't actually physically gotten into these popular Berlin department stores and their coveted collections that they carry of women's and men's wear and children's wear. And the fashion culture around it, with popular magazines like Die Dame, which we'll get into into later podcasts. We're not even at that point yet. We're still outside with the street hawkers like Franz Biberkopf trying to sell ties that have probably been stolen from a riot. But just like just like the physical outside where we still are in this story, you can begin to get a sense that dress and fashion culture really happens on the streets of Berlin. And one of the major vehicles for fashion's ephemerality is it, and sense of urgency are the street hawkers. They're really selling the latest and greatest of what's in store and probably, probably selling it for less. Everything from leathers, furs, ties, all being sold in spurts of supply and demand. One could make the argument that fashion and dress was really all about immediacy and that was and that immediacy was really mirrored in the instability of the Weimar era. Now I've left you with a lot to process, think about lots of dates and notes and facts and people and that's it for this week. Um, Now you can definitely check out my show notes and the transcript on the blog which will be in the episode link description. And that's where, so that's where you can get all of that information. And I just like to thank you so much for listening to the season premiere of this new podcast. I'm super excited about, and I'm really happy that you're going to join me on this, this journey as we really dive deeper. And next week, we're going to go more into street hawking. We're going to talk about department stores and ultimately fashion and fashion publications. Now, I'd like to give a very special, very special thanks to one of my dear friends and someone I've always looked up to um, as an academic, Dr. Katrina Sark, for her incredible guidance and mentorship, and also Dr. Giza Kessemeyer. And she's really done a lot of fabulous research and work on Berlin fashion history and department stores, especially Hermann Gesson. 
And as I said, for show notes and also literary literature recommendations, you can definitely check out the blog post. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful start to your week. And bis bald.